As I finish my last sermon in the sermon series, The Danger of a Shallow Church. The Dangers of a Shallow Church. This is the third sermon in the ser sermon series. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to the other two, please go to our Facebook account and watch our online stream and watch it. This will be my last sermon in the sermon series. Now, next week, and the week after Valentine's Day, I'm just going to preach whatever, just, it's not going to be a sermon series, all right? So I'm just going to, whatever the Lord gives me this week, I'm going to preach. I like sermon series, but I don't like them all the time because I just like to be free so I can feel the impression of the Lord. Is that all right? I like sermon series, but I don't like them all the time. So, so next week, uh, we're going to deal with something else and also on Valentine's Day. All right, so um, Matthew chapter 13, verse number 18 Matthew 13, verse number 18, and listen to the words of Jesus. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes, snatches it away, what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Look at verse number 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but only endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The danger of a shallow church, part three. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have together in your house. I cannot preach unless the preacher shows up. So I pray that you would help me today. Give me the words to speak to your people. First of all, Lord, they're your people way before they were my people. They are your sheep before they're my sheep. I'm just the under-shepherd. You're the shepherd. You're the bishop of our souls. So we pray that you speak to me through your people, that their ears may be open, receptive, that they, when they leave your house, there may be some sort of transformation that's happened in their heart. In Jesus' name, and everyone shouted a great big amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Last week, the last few weeks, I preached a sermon series on the shallowness of Christianity. My sermon series has been quite challenging for some of you. Sometimes it's not always easy to preach challenging and hard sermons. I'd much rather preach sermons that make you happy, make you shout, or put a smile on your face. I don't always enjoy preaching challenging sermons. I'd rather much rather preach feel-good sermons than sermons that are challenging. But I'm also reminded that pastors are almost like parents. Parents always have, a good parent should always have 
the best interest of their child first. And no matter how hard it is, they realize it's good for their child. So pastors are like parents in some sense. They still want the best for their child. And I think that as a pastor, there's always a balance. There's a balance between sermons that make you feel good and sermons that challenge you to be better. You see, the Apostle Paul had that same dilemma. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 27, and I quote, he said, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, there's a lot to Scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, that sometimes we don't see. He says, I'm not going to back away from declaring to you the whole picture. You see, there's more in the Bible than blessings. There's more in the Bible than feel-good sermons. It is called the whole counsel of God. And I believe that whatever it may be, whether it's a feel-good sermon or whether it's a challenging sermon, the key is, is to always have a teachable spirit. Because I've learned one thing in life, and that is this, you're not always right about things. You are flawed and broken. Our humanity, the core of our humanity is broken and flawed. And we have a tendency to interpret life through a lens that is broken, through a lens that is flawed. And that is why it's very easy for us not to accept the word of the Lord because we can look through the lens of our own brokenness and insecurity. So let us be reminded today that it is the whole counsel of God. I like what Lennon Ravenhill, the great revivalist, said in his book, Why Revival Tarries, and I quote, The Bible says that men have itching ears, but I am not commissioned from God to scratch them. The Bible says men have itching ears, but I have no commission from God to scratch them. You see, Richard Foster, one of my favorite books, said it like this. I've already said it a few weeks ago, but I want to re, I want to say it again because I believe that it holds weight to what I'm saying. He said this in his book called Celebration of Discipline. Superficiality is the curse of the age. The desperate need today is not for a great number of intellectual people or gifted people, but for deep people. You see, I know the last year in 2020 has been very difficult for all of us. Not just you, but it's been very difficult for me. Can you imagine trying to please everybody? I can never please everybody. Some people think you're not cautious enough. Some people think that if we don't do this, we're all going to die. Some people think it's ridiculous and it's a conspiracy. Back and forth, back and forth. Republicans against Democrats. Everybody has a view. But let me just make sure that you're reminded of something, and I say this respectfully. My responsibility as a pastor is not to prevent natural death. My responsibility from, from the Lord is to make sure that you don't end up in eternal damnation. That 
is my responsibility. First and foremost, do I think we need to use wisdom? Certainly. Do I think that we need to do the best that we know how to do? Certainly. Do we try to need to follow protocol? Of course. Life is good and life should be cherished. But my responsibility, first and foremost, is to make sure that we are saved from eternal damnation. You see, last year, it was very, very difficult for all of us as a church and as a nation. Many people were discouraged, including at times myself. And I know that in a pandemic, we want to be encouraged, don't we? But I've also learned something very valuable, that we cannot use the pandemic and our discouragement as a reason for us to slack on our commitment to God. Adversity should make us better. But I believe that the adversity has made us more fearful and made us more isolated and made us more closed off. But that is not the religion of the Bible. Adversity made the church stronger. Adversity made the church not weaker, but it made it stronger to the point that it shook the gates of cities and turned the world upside down. We have focused so much on our misery that we have forgot our mission. Using the pandemic should not cause us to slack from our personal devotion to God. It should make us have a deeper sense of His presence. And sometimes we have the language of faith, but we don't live the life of faith. We have become what one church theologian said, we are gun collectors, but we're not soldiers. I want to remind you that even in science, there's a law called the law of thermodynamics. The law of thermodynamics teaches us that nothing just gets better. Nothing just improves. Matter of fact, look at your body. It doesn't just improve, does it? Things begin to sag and things begin to do this. And think every, The law of thermodynamics states everything is going downhill. And all of you should have said, oh my. That's what the law, and the reason that we tried to suck it in and lift it up, you know, whatever you want to do, is because gravity, the law of thermodynamic states, it's not getting better. It's all going downhill. And I want to remind you that it is the same principle with our spiritual life. You just don't get better spiritually. You just don't become better overnight. We as a people have a tendency to drift from God. Let me remind you of the stories of the Old Testament. How many times did God have to send a judge or a prophet to speak to his people concerning the state of their lives? These are people who said they love God. These are people who were dedicated to his service. But over and over in the pages of the Old Testament, these people kept serving foreign gods. Because nothing just gets better. We, our natural instinct is to drift from God, not to go towards God. And history has proven that. History has proven that the natural state of man is to drift from God, not drift towards God. 
And if you're drifting towards God, it is because you're intentional about drifting towards God. The scripture, there is a plethora of scripture to advocate this principle. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 and verse 1, speaking to believers, the Bible says in Hebrews 2 verse 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we heard, lest we drift away. The Bible also says in Hebrews 3 verse 12, and I quote, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. He's not speaking to sinners. This book was written to believers. The Bible also says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, you get the point. These Christians in the book of Hebrews were drifting from God. He also said this, and I quote, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some. It's not natural to keep just drifting towards God. It's not natural just to be faithful. It's not natural to be devoted in our personal disciplined life. It's not natural just to do that. Our human nature is from Adam. It is from Adam. It wants to rebel from God. When you become a Christian, you have a new nature. And you've got to make a decision which nature you're going to walk in. You're going to walk in the new nature that's from Christ. And that new nature gives you the ability to do what's right. The risen Savior gives you the ability and the power to do what's right, even in the face of an Adamic nature. You see, some people want to walk away. You've got to be very careful. It's the same problem. There's a plethora of Scripture how people would drift away from God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, and I quote, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. He was speaking to one of the churches of Asia, a church. He was speaking to a church, believers. And the Lord said, I have something against you. You have left your first love. So it's very possible for us to drift away from God. The law of thermodynamics states that naturally things get worse. And my friends, spiritually, things don't get better just because you want it to get better. You see, the Bible says that you have left your first love. In other words, you made that decision. You made the decision. You see, your life is a sum total of all the decisions that you've ever made. You see, your destiny is found in the decisions that you make every day of your life. If you can choose to follow Jesus, you can also reject Jesus at the same time. You see, there was a theologian by the name of D.R. D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson said it like this in his commentary, and I quote, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace, driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of the lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped illegalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have become liberated. See, we just don't naturally drift towards the things of God. Greg Crochelle said it like this in his leadership podcast, and I quote, Organizations 
don't drift towards growth. They drift towards complacency and decline. If you are not intentionally preparing for growth, you are unintentionally preparing for decline. See, let me say this and let me say it loud and clear, my friends. Everybody is a Christian until it gets biblical. And when it gets biblical, it gets, becomes challenging, and therefore we become resistant to change. Everyone is a Christian until it's biblical. Everyone. David Platt said in his book, and I quote, We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. What about it, my friends? What about it, my friends? Have we, condu have we, uh, have we become conducive to a cafeteria Christianity? Have you ever been to a cafeteria like, you know, Golden Corral is kind of like a cafeteria. Ryan's, you go through and you kind of get what you want and go back to your table. We've turned Christianity into a Golden Corral. We pick what we want and we eat as much as that that we want, but we reject the other things that's at the table. You see, this is not a Christianity that's a cafeteria. This is the whole counsel of God. It is the meat and the potatoes and the dessert. It's the whole thing to bring nourishment to our body. Francis Chan wrote a book, The Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. And he's wrote several books about how he became so complacent, so aggravated with the complacency of the church. As a matter of fact, he resigned his church because he was so frustrated with complacency. He resigned it, gave it all up, gave it up his income, and he went to the mission field because he says there has to be authentic Christianity somewhere. And he said, he was saying in his book one time that somebody said to him, a random churchgoer after church went up to him and said, Pastor, I don't really like worship today. Francis Chan looked at him and said, that's okay, we wasn't worshiping you anyway. How many times have you left the church service and you didn't like it? You got to understand something. It was never about you anyway. The worship service is about God. You're not the audience. There's the audience of one, and he is the audience. He's the audience. See, it's imperative that you understand something, that I remind you that although we have been in a pandemic, we cannot let that be an excuse for us to become loose in our convictions, and loose in our Bible reading, and loose in our witness, and loose in our spiritual practices. Because I've learned one thing, the moment you become loose, you will lose. Anytime a person becomes loose, they will lose in life. So let's not be loose. Because the moment you become loose, you will lose in life. Sometimes, my friends, we, 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 we look at the call to deeper consecration we, we, we look at the call to deeper commitment to Christ. If we don't like it, we label it as legalism. That's legalistic. I don't have to do that. I'm free in Jesus. It's so easy for us to use Scripture to condone our feelings. You see, Scripture was never used to condone how you feel. Scripture is a roadmap to tell you how to live in spite of how you feel. You see, you have to make a decision that as a church and myself, because anytime I'm preaching, I'm always preaching to myself. I've already preached this five times before I preached it to you. You see, we have a decision to make. Either we can set the culture or we can reflect the culture, but you can't do both.
We can't just be like the culture. You see, the word church in the Greek means ekklesia. The word ek means out, like exegesis, out. The church is called out of the world. It's not to look like the world. It's different from the world. The church is a city within a city. It is a, it is a people within a people. It is a nation within a nation. We are not to set we are, not to, uh, we are not to reflect the culture. Rather, we are supposed to set the culture. Now listen to Pastor Josh today. Shallow Christianity teaches us that there isn't a price for your commitment. Shallow Christianity says, would you raise your hand and say this prayer after me? You know how many times I've done that in ministry? God bless that hand. God bless that hand. God bless that hand. And they walk down the aisle and they repeat a prayer. They leave the altar and they go back and they're unchanged. Let me say this and let me say it very loud and clear. A prayer at the altar doesn't mean you have been converted from darkness to light. I'm going to say that again. Just because you prayed a quote sinner's prayer doesn't mean you have genuinely been converted. How do I know that I am saved? You know you're saved when your affections are Godward and not manward. Can I hear an amen? When your desire is towards God and your affections are towards God, then that means there has been conversion. The Apostle Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. You know you're a Christian when your Christianity has affected every area of your life. Now make sure you understand this. I am not saying you should be perfect. I'm not saying that you won't slip up and say some things you shouldn't say and do things you shouldn't do. But a true Christian don't want to sin. And even though they may mess up, they're not going to stay in the sin because it's not their nature. A pig will, you can take a pig and clean a pig up and put a bow around a pig's neck. And I promise you that pig, if it finds some muddy water and a mud puddle, it is going to go to the mud puddle and roll around in the mud puddle. Do you know why? Because the nature of the pig is to get dirty. And I want to let you know, you may get dirty as a Christian, but it's not your nature to stay in the mud hole. It's not your nature to stay there. You don't want to live there. Christianity is not a shallow commitment. I believe that we need to inform people when they come to the front to get saved. Do you know what you're getting into? This is a commitment. This is a lifestyle change. We're not asking for perfection. We're asking for a commitment. It's following Jesus with an obedient heart. It means to take up your cross. It means that as a Christian, your family may not like you. And I know that's hard for some of you to take because it's everything to you. But Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple if everybody approves of you. Jesus said that when I come, I bring a sword and I divide stuff. Sometimes when you become a Christian, not everybody will like you. Your family may not approve of your decision. There are people that's given their life to Jesus overseas. And they know what they're getting into. Because the moment they convert to Christianity means they have dishonored their family. They are cut off from their family. And it possibly means death. 
They know what they're getting into. But here in America, we say our little prayers and it doesn't affect anything. I'm telling you, Christianity is more than a creed. It's more than a song. And it's more than a service on Sunday morning. It should permeate your whole entire life. It should change your life. When you sign up for Christianity, it may be difficult. You may not understand everything. You may have lots of questions. But let me tell you something. Everything you do for Christ is not a waste. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German pastor, theologian, and martyr, and spy, was asked in 1943 how it was possible that the church could sit back and let Hitler seize absolute control and power. His firm answer was this. It was the teaching of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was asked, how in the world could Hitler seize that much power and the church set back and let it happen? He said, it's the teaching of cheap grace. The Catholic church turned their head during the Holocaust, act like it didn't exist. Cheap grace. Protestants turned their head as well. Act like it never existed while millions of Jews were slaughtered by the hand of Hitler. Cheap grace. If you believe, Augustine, the great church father, said it like this, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but you believe yourself. You believe yourself. You see, my friends, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean? To the Catholics, it means following the church, participating in the seven sacraments. To the Protestant, it means memorizing scripture and being devoted to the written word. To other movements, it means the glory dust and as much glory we can get. On and on, we all have what it means to follow Jesus. But no matter what you think, we've got to be true to Scripture. And Scripture teaches us that the essence of following Jesus is a surrendered life. That means that Jesus is Lord over our mind, our body, our will, and our emotions. That means that when you make day-to-day decisions, Jesus is a part of that decision. The way you raise your children, it is Jesus-centered. The way you conduct your marriage, it is Jesus-centered. The way you deal with your money, it is Jesus-centered. How you treat the waiter on Sunday afternoon, it is Jesus-centered. Your life reflects the values and attributes and character of Jesus Christ. It's more than a creed. It's character. You see, a follower of Jesus is somebody that's being changed by Jesus, that's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Is somebody is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. 
George Mueller said it like this, and I quote, Be assured that Christianity is something more than the forms and the creeds and the ceremonies. There is life, there is power, and there is reality in our holy faith. Is there anybody in the building that can testify that you know it's more than ceremonies and creeds, but there is power and reality in the risen Savior and the faith of Jesus Christ? Come on, somebody. Do you believe it today? Let me ask you something. Why do we need Jesus? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about why we need Jesus? Is Jesus a lottery ticket that we scratch off and hopefully we'll win real big as serving Jesus? Is Jesus a mascot that we bring out on Sunday morning, he dances in front of the church, and we all scream, hoop, and holler, but when the service is over, we put the mascot in the back corner? What is Jesus? Who is this man? And why do we need Jesus? And I've searched the scriptures. Why do we need him? What is the reason that we need Jesus? And remember I said a few weeks ago that you've got to have a biblical Christian worldview. How do you interpret life? You've got to interpret it as a Christian and not as a humanistic, not through a humanistic view. And if you look at the scripture, it tells us, thank you, sister, yes, Jesus is the only way to God. But I want to propose another idea, that the reason that you need Jesus today is because you are dead without Jesus. Can I say that again? You are dead without Jesus. Somebody say that as loud as you can say it. I am, say it really loud. I am, say it again. I am, without Jesus, you are dead. I'm going to say that without Jesus, you're dead. But pastor, I'm breathing. I go to work. I'm not dead. That's not what he's talking about. The day that you eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve, will be the day that you surely die. The day that you eat of the fruit will be the day that you surely die. And the day that Eve ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband, all of humanity fell into sin. And that is why Jesus said you must be born again because when you are born into the world, you are born dead. You say, why does that person love God? They're dead. I've talked to them about Jesus. I told them that Jesus, and they're in powerful services, but their heart is not warm towards God. They're dead. The scripture teaches us without Jesus, you are spiritually dead. And if you're spiritually dead, you are not, you don't have an inclination towards God. You don't care about the things of God. You, you it doesn't, it doesn't, has no effect on you. Because dead people don't have senses. Dead people are not inclined to any desires because they're dead. The scripture teaches us that you are dead without Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. 
and you were made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Did you hear what pastor just said? And he made you alive who you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also you once conducted yourself in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath just as others but God hallelujah but God I said but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses has made us alive with Christ by grace you are saved without Jesus you are dead you're dead and that is why, look at me, look at pastor. That is why you can't disciple dead people. You can't get dead people to do godly things because they're dead. The great pastor, James Kennedy, before his death, in his book called The Explosion Evangelism, he was a Presbyterian pastor. It's not behind me, but listen to this quote. And I quote, I'm convinced that at the end of my ministry, the reason for my frustration with church people in the lack of discipleship and mission and desire for God was not that the fact that they were not there, but it was the fact that they was not truly converted or saved. That's a Presbyterian. It's sad to think you're saved When you're not. That's what's scary. Is to be convinced that you're saved. Convinced. That you're alive to God. And yet you are still in your sin. Martin Luther said. When I look at myself. I don't see how I could ever be saved. But when I look at Christ. I don't see how I can be lost. The gospel, Tim Keller, the gospel, he said, is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we've ever dreamed to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. You see, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that if you are dead, there is no inclination towards godly things. How do I know I'm saved? You're saved by the witness of the word, by faith, and you're saved by the witness of the spirit, according to scripture. Your spirit bears witness, his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are born of God. And as a result of that, your affections are Godward. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin and mess up, but it means that your desire and your affections are Godward. It wants to please God even though you may struggle with the same sin. Even though you may struggle with the same sin and faults and failures over and over, that doesn't mean you're not born again. Struggle does not mean you're not saved. I would say struggle means you are saved because the Adamic nature and the God nature on the inside of you is wrestling together in a war. Because when you're dead, there is no struggle. So if you're struggling, that's good. Shows that 
the nature of God, the nature of Christ, is at war with the nature of Adam. You see? What are you saying, Pastor? I've got three minutes left. What are you saying? How do I stop the shallowness? I've already preached to you what it is. I've already preached to you the last two weeks that we shouldn't be shallow. I've already said it's just not us. It's, it's an epidemic that's going around the world. It's just not me proclaiming this. There are thousands of pastors who are proclaiming that we shouldn't be shallow. This is an epidemic. And I am saying that I'm a watchman. I'm a mailman. I'm a preacher. And I want you to know that we can't fall asleep. You see, over and over in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, it tells us the disciples fell asleep. They, I know, that's an application to us. We have a tendency to fall asleep spiritually. And I'm asking you, don't fall asleep. I'm asking you to wake up. I'm asking you to let your senses be aroused by the Spirit of God. I don't have a formula this morning to tell you to prevent shallowness. I don't have anything magical to tell you. I don't have these steps to say, do this, do this, and do this, and you won't be shallow. Because I think that's what's happened in the church. We want to give all these steps to give to someone, and that's not what it's about. It's not about steps. It's about living an obedient life, and that happens every day of our life. It's about having the right worldview. That's what it means. It's about seeing things the right way. That prevents shallowness. It's about accepting suffering and pain as a part of our story. Yes, Jesus can heal. And yes, Jesus does heal. And yes, Jesus takes care of our pain and our hurt. But there are some things that happens in life that we don't have the question for. And as scripture, as students of the word, we got to look at suffering and pain from a different perspective. Because if not, you'll fall away and think that God has done it to you. You gotta, you gotta live a, you gotta practice the presence of God. It has to be an everyday thing. And if it's not an everyday thing, strive and make it better. Even in the midst of your struggle, even in the midst of your pain, listen to pastor, you're going to struggle and you may even struggle with sin and you may even struggle with the same sin, but living a life that's surrendered to Jesus means this, I'm not going to stay in my sin, I'm going to pursue after him even in my struggle. Even in my struggle, I'm going to pursue after him. Because what do shallow people do? Shallow people give up when it's not going their way and it doesn't feel good. But living a stable life means I don't understand everything. I don't understand my struggle. I don't understand my hurt. But I refuse to let that be the dominating factor in my life. My love for Jesus is the motivating factor for everything. It means that your head is surrendered to Jesus. My heart, the way I feel, sometimes you've got to get your feelings in line. It's not always right how you feel. Your hands, you've got to serve. Feet, being missional, telling somebody about Jesus. Spiritual maturity isn't measured by how high you jump in praise, but it's how straight you walk in obedience. Jesus is not just worthy of a song service. Jesus is worthy to be followed and obeyed. The only people who want to change the gospel are those who are unchanged by it. Listen, as I close today, let me remind you of two things. On your Christian journey, number one, don't beat yourself up. 
continue to move in the right direction, listen to me. Don't beat yourself up. I struggle just like you struggle. But to prevent shallowness means I don't give up. You continue to move, even if it's a small direction. You stay in the right direction. Don't ever go back to the wrong direction. Stay in the right direction. Even if you've got to crawl over the finish line, just make sure you stay in the right direction and keep your eyes focused on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. That means that every act of an intentional movement towards Jesus is never a waste. If all you can do is read three verses a day, maybe your mind is messed up. And you say, Pastor, I don't understand the Bible. Just read three verses. Just make a movement towards Jesus. All I can make it to church, Pastor, is one service. Just do what you can and be committed to it. Be faithful what you're committed to do. The Bible is full of people. Remember Noah? Noah saved a civilization but got drunk after he delivered humanity. God used him. What about Jacob who battled insecurity and fear so much that he expected to reap deceit because of what he has sown in his family? What about Moses? He had a temper and he allowed his past failures to traumatize him so badly that when God personally invited him to be the deliverer of the people of Israel, he repeatedly turned God down. Elisha and David had extreme mood swings and very depressed, but they never gave up. They had an intentional movement towards God David had a man after God's heart. He didn't always have God's heart. It was after God's heart. And many of the disciples in the Gospels were just egotistical men who had a thirst for power. The Apostle Paul was tormented something. The Apostle Paul was tormented over something so badly that he never significantly gave us the answer to what he was battling over. All he said was, it's a thorn in my flesh. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient to take care of it. We don't know what it was, but he had a struggle. The point is, is all of these people were messed up. All of these people had struggles. All of these people had insecurities. And they all had a right to give up and be shallow. But all of them made a commitment in their struggle that I'm going to make a movement towards Jesus no matter what. Your past is either your limitation or your launching pad. Let me tell you something. The learner must be active in the process of learning. John and Judas had the same teacher, but one of them betrayed him. Just because I'm your pastor, doesn't, you have to be active in listening. Your heart has to be teachable. Because John and Judas had the same pastor and the same teacher, and one of them followed him to the end, and the other one betrayed him. It wasn't Jesus' fault. It was the heart of the individual. See? Christine Kane said it best. Most of us do not allow God to develop us because we're waiting for someone to discover us. 
hear me? You hear me? What about it, folks? Evangelical Christianity in the United States is often characterized by a deep desire to have Christianity pervade our culture. But we have not allowed Christ to penetrate our lives. Christ has to be more than a church service. It has to affect your life. Jesus is worth living for. Jesus is better than anything you could imagine. Jesus is worth dying for. Jesus is worth going to church for. Jesus is worth reading the Bible for. Jesus is worth it, folks. And at the end, when we make it and we cross the finish line, we'll high-five each other and we'll say, we're so glad we made it to the very end. Hallelujah.